Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to assemble together. We ask that you would take each part of this service and use it to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be a very long time since we have been in the book of Revelation. and It hasn't been that long, but uh, we'll try to pick up our study again. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And honestly, I, I would like to preach three entire sermons tonight, but I will not do that. Uh, I don't want to keep you here till midnight. We'll try to uh, lay some groundwork tonight for the coming weeks. And probably one of the most famous passages or, or participants here in the book of Revelation we're going to talk about tonight, that is the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, as they are often called. And uh, just take a moment, let's set the uh, scene here. Uh, Jesus has appeared to John. He is giving him uh, a command to record part one, the things which thou hast seen. That's Revelation chapter one, the things which are. The letters to the churches as Jesus is giving instruction. He is giving commendation. He is giving condemnation to those churches. We believe that those churches are descriptive of different types of churches that were uh, they were descriptive of the churches that are named in the book of Revelation, each of which were real churches in existence when the book of Revelation was penned. And we believe in turn uh, they are typical of churches today. And of course, it doesn't take too long as we re read through the book of Revelation, went through those chapters to see churches doing exactly the same things that were happening in the book of Revelation. Now... We are talking about the things which shall be hereafter. John was in the spirit. He began to see and describe to us things that God showed him. Chapters 4 and 5, we get a glimpse into heaven. And we must, again, go back to the theme of the book. Uh, people love to get caught up in, in when we go through what we're going through tonight. I mean... The last writer, one-fourth of the world's population is killed under his power. And people start going, oh, wow, it's got to be this and it's got to be that. Wait a minute. What is the book? It's not the revelation of the fourth writer of the apocalypse. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he is giving us this information not so that we can be smart. Not so that we can know things that nobody else knows. But so that we can know more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must keep that in focus as we look at what goes on here. And let's just read down through the first eight or so verses of Revelation chapter 6. And I saw the lamb, when, I'm sorry, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast saying, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. 
and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. So, if you'll remember chapters 4 and 5, chapter 4, we saw the throne, chapter 5, In the hand of him that sat upon the throne was the book. It was written within, it was written without, and it was sealed with seven seals. And the search began to be made all throughout the universe to find one that could open the book, that could take the book. And if you'll remember, John, as we all do, kind of messed things up. He just started bawling, weeping, because... He said, they're looking for somebody, they can't find him. It was like the little boy, um, the pastor was trying to impress upon him, uh, his behavior was bad and that God was seeing him. And he said, son, where's God? He did that three or four times and the little boy just got up and ran out of the office, scared to death. He said, mom. The preacher's lost God and he doesn't know where to find him. He's blaming me. Uh, That's kind of what happened to John here. I know it didn't happen. But it does make you think about things now, doesn't it? They weren't looking because they didn't know who was going to be found. They were looking because God was in the process of proving the worthiness of his son. Amen? And that's what this book is about. And as his son takes that sealed book out of the hand of the father, it is all wrapped up. It is bound in seven layers of material. Often they would take uh, a linen piece of material, wrap it around something and melt wax upon it to seal it. They didn't have tape and all of the things that we do today. They sealed the tomb of Jesus, much the same way that book was sealed. There was a piece of material put over that so that no one uh, would break that. No one could enter the tomb without breaking that seal. And breaking that seal had the authority of Rome. Aren't you glad somebody bigger than Rome showed up to roll away the stone? Amen. Jesus takes a hold of one of those seals on the book and breaks it loose. The moment he does that, John hears 
a noise like thunder. It is one of those four beasts that are immediately around the throne. And he cries a command to John. He says, come and see. And I will tell you, as I've been reading uh, commentaries and what everybody says, boy, they want to go into the words and say, well, the the only word that's in the original is come. Well, no. Look at your Bible there. No italics. What was John supposed to do? He's supposed to record the things that he saw, the things that Jesus dictated, those that are, and the things which shall be hereafter. How in the world is he supposed to record things if he can't see them? Amen? And people want to argue over words, and they want to argue over uh, adjectives and prefixes and all of those things. Just read your Bible. He said, come and see, and he saw, and the first thing he saw, look what it says. Verse 2, and I saw, and behold, a white horse. Now, most of us are familiar with the Lone Ranger riding his great white stallion. Uh, white horses have been symbolic all through history. They say the good guys ride the white horse. Now, that's not always true. But the man that's in charge always rides the white horse. And he comes and he sees this white horse. And boy, I mean, part of me just wants immediately to go to the book of Zechariah. And and, and I hope to do that in Matthew 24 and, and make some connections there. But let's just go through this. Uh, and paint the picture that is painted here for us, and then try to go through in the following weeks and, and put it all together. But he looks at this horse. That is what arrests his attention first. And then he is focused in verse uh, the second phrase, and he that sat upon him. He looks at the man sitting on the horse, and he sees that he has a bow. So he sees this horse, white, beautiful, a symbol of power and authority. And he sees a man that sits on that horse and he has a bow. And then the next thing we know is someone is going over to that man and giving a crown to him. As he is sitting on the horse, we don't know who actually does this. Maybe God just through a spoken word puts a crown upon his head and immediately he spurs his horse and gallops off and he's got a duty to do. He is going to conquer. It says going forth, conquering and to conquer. I want to ask you, there's something missing in this picture. What's missing? No arrows. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I've always been curious how they do this. I I know Hollywood does some incredible things, but they'll show the warrior there with just one little quiver full of arrows, and he never runs out. Have you ever noticed that? It's kind of like the old westerns. I mean, he's got a six-shooter, 18, 20 shots, and I mean, he's still going. 
not quite sure how that works, but normally if you're going to go forth and conquer, you're going to have to fight a battle. If you're going to fight a battle, you're going to have to dispose of the enemy. Uh, if your main weapon is a bow, it would help to have some arrows, would it not? And yet he is given a crown and no arrows. And still, he goes forth conquering, taking authority from others and giving it to himself. And he proceeds to conquer others. Now, people have read in the book of Revelation, you go to chapter 19, and he that is faithful and true is riding a white horse. Of course, we know that is the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, see here, this is the Lord. Uh, no. It cannot be him because Jesus does not conquer holding a bow. He conquers with the word of his mouth, the sword that goes out of his mouth. And by the way, all the armies of heaven are on white horses in verse 14. We believe, as simple and as honest as we can, this is the Antichrist. He is going to appear on the scene. The Bible also calls him the beast. He's called the little horn in Daniel. Uh, many titles. And he is going to conquer now, I want you just to think about world history just for a moment. As we are in a time of world history where there have been many nations deposed in recent history. We've had how many governments throughout the Middle East? Libya. Uh, they're working on Syria now. Egypt, I believe, was the first. And... These governments were toppled and reset up. Now, of course, American military might went into Iraq and Afghanistan 30 days after 9-11. The Taliban, the government that had bankrupt the Soviet empire, had been put out of business. Now, they still control little parts, but the Taliban does not own Afghanistan, nor has it controlled the entire nation as it did since that day. We have a lot of battles going on in our world. But how many of you have heard of cyber warfare? Where you can attack a country through its computers and through its system. You know, we talk about all the oil in the Middle East. But what if somebody stopped buying that oil for a couple of days? There's some... Governments that would fall, is there not? How did the former Soviet Union come down? I think it was President Reagan said, tear down this wall, and they tore down the wall. I mean, we have seen change in human government, things that we could never have imagined. Those of you that, uh, like I, that grew up during the Cold War, who would have ever thought that the Soviet Empire would have unraveled like it did in just a matter of weeks? That was an impossible thought. So don't discount this fellow coming in and taking control of the world without having to use the military might that has been used in the past. 
That is what is being spoken of. And, and later on, when we get to the uh, chapter 13 and we study the beast that rises up out of the sea, and it'll talk about him in different passages of the Bible, and it says, who can make war against the beast? Who can fight this guy? You know, it's going to be interesting. I praise God we won't be around to see all this thing happening. But we have a world leader that is going to conquer, not through warfare, but through peace. Now, the reason why we say that is, let's look at the second writer for a moment. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. And just so you don't get mixed up here, the Bible does not give us a time frame for these four writers. The, these events easily, if we understand what we do, uh, if, if what we think we understand we do, these first six seals are going to take a period of about three and a half years to completely fulfill themselves. And uh, try to explain it as like a trip hammer as the uh, smith begins to beat. He, get, he takes the metal and hits it slowly and then as the metal begins to cool, he is shaping that metal and he'll hit faster and harder. And that's what's going to happen in the book of Revelation in this seven-year period which Jesus said, if those days were not shortened, no flesh should survive. And so we see the beginning of this tribulation period, and we go to the book of Daniel very quickly, uh, just reference it. The last week starts when the prince of the king, that the kingdom that shall come, will make a treaty with Israel. Does that sound like? Conquering into conquer? It does to me. And he's going to bring peace to the world. Now, we don't know how long that's going to last because as John is watching this happening, he holds the book in his hand and he pops the first seal and out comes this white horse. He rides off to conquer. And we get down to three, verse 3. It says, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see his voice, the Bible tells us, as it were the noise of thunder. And so John comes to see, and it says, there went out another horse. And he looks at this horse, and this horse is red. And someone says, well, red is not a natural color for a horse, is it? Well, technically it is when you get that sable brown uh, it is often called uh, red. Uh, I think that it just means red, like the color of blood. Because these are not normal horses, my friend. And we find that this horse also has a rider. And there's power given unto this horse. Power to take peace from the earth. Now, where did the peace come from that he's taking? First writer, conquering and conquering. Conquering and to conquer. How many of you are familiar with the term Pax Romana? Any Latin scholars here? A 200-year period that they say was the most peaceful period 
in the history of mankind. Well, that may or may not be true, but if you were living under Roman rule, it was peaceful as long as you obeyed. If you decided to stand against Roman rule, uh, it wasn't very peaceful for you. Uh, I've, I've never known an army in the world to do what the Romans did at Masada. Just a couple hundred Jews camped out on a mountaintop. And they brought in the legions of Rome and Titus from Rome itself to decimate and destroy one little outpost with less than 300 people in it. That was Roman peace. But it seems that the only way mankind has ever found peace is the first writer conquering and to conquer. How many are familiar with the history of Yugoslavia? Under Tito, there was peace. You know why? Because if a Serb killed a Bosnian, Tito sent in special forces and killed everybody in the town. There was no war in Yugoslavia when Tito was in charge. But as soon as he was, the hand of communism was released, all the old battles began to go again. And look what it says about this fellow here. It says, Power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Have you ever wondered why? Some wars are fought. World War One all started with a diplomatic insult and an assassination. How many lives were lost in World War One? I? I mean, World War Two is a little easier to understand the machinations of the madman Hitler who wanted to. Uh, murder and destroy every living soul between Berlin and Moscow so that the German people could live there. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why would one man think that he could murder a third of the world's population just so his people could have farmland? I mean, that's really the whole essence of, of what World War II was all about. And we come here and we look at this man and he is given a great sword... Those that were conquered and were living in peace, now all of a sudden, the crazed stupor of hatred and war comes back and they begin to fight. And before that finishes, the third seal is opened. And it said, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld in lo a black horse. And of course, anytime you see a black horse, you know trouble is coming, right? Well, unless it's Black Beauty or the Black Stallion or any of those things. But the symbolism is not lost here. The black horse is there and it's interesting. He, he is told again to come and see and he behold, he, be, he looks and sees the black horse and him that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. Now, if you're familiar with balances, what, what is the first thing that you think of? You think of the lady with the blindfold holding the balances? Justice, right? 
That's not this guy. This guy has nothing to do with justice or fairness or rightness. He's going to measure. Now, what's he going to measure? We come here and it says, And I heard the voice in the I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts. By the way, who was in the midst of the four beasts? He that sat upon the throne and the Lamb. So this is a direct command from God himself to the rider of the third beast. And he says, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now, when you hear a penny in America, what do you think of? That little round copper coin that will not get you anything anymore. I don't know why they call it penny candy, but most of it is like four or five cents now. That's not penny candy. Uh, some of you might remember when penny candy was actually a penny. And, uh, and there was a time when you actually got more than one piece for a penny. Uh, what is a measure? Well, a measure, when it talks about a measure of wheat, three measures of barley... That is the amount of food, uh, of wheat or barley, that it would take to make one meal for one person. A measure was not a very big amount. How would you like your dinner to be one pancake? That is a measure of wheat. Now, he says, a measure of wheat for a penny. Ah, no problem. If I have a dollar, I got a hundred pancakes. Wrong. I may remember the parable of the vineyard. What was the wages of the workers in the vineyard? One penny. How would you like to work all day and be able to buy enough wheat to make one pancake? Could you sustain a full day's work on one pancake? Now, what if you were a father and you have children and a wife that is at home? And now, all of a sudden, you've got enough food to make one pancake for the entire nutrition for your entire family in one day. It says three measures of barley. Uh, barley has always been cheaper. That's oats, like oatmeal. So you can get three bowls of oatmeal or one pancake for a day's wages. That's what we call famine. And by the way, there are many places in the world where it is that way today. But it seems that these riders are global in scope. Especially this last guy, because he is charged with a fourth part of the population of the entire earth. And so, it says, See thou hurt not the oil and the wine. One fellow put this out, and I'll just throw it out for you. Oil and wine were the... Uh, Condiments were the extras of the rich men. It would be a place where 
rich people could still get what they wanted, but the poor people are going to be starving. And by the way, how many rich people are there to poor people? It's an interesting thought. The oil and the wine are going to be destroyed later as we go through the book. But the average human being, the masses as we would say, guess where we come in? That's us. The average normal person on earth, when this fourth, third rider begins to ride, is not going to have the ability to feed themselves. There are many parts of the world that are like that, even this day. But imagine what it would be like with a worldwide famine. Um, you wonder why the beast comes up with this plan that no man can buy or sell without taking the mark of the beast and allegiance to his kingdom? If there's no food, then there's going to be a battle over who gets it. These things all interlock as we go through the description of this time called the tribulation. And then we have the fourth rider. And it says, Behold a pale horse. Now there's an awful lot that's been made of a pale horse. Some say that the word there actually means green, like dead. Well, who's the rider? You think death is going to be riding a stately, beautiful, healthy, living horse? Uh, don't think so. It's going to be a grotesque thing in the least. And it says, His name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, red horse, hunger, black horse, death, pale horse, and with the beast of the earth. So we see that these supernatural riders here are these last two, especially, are worldwide in scope. A fourth of the population, we just hit seven billion in the population of the earth. Now, we divide that by half and we get three and a half billion. We divide that by half. We get 1.75 billion people under the influence of the riders of the fourth horse. That is a catastrophe not known in the history of the world. What is the time frame? We... Don't know. The Bible doesn't give us a complete time frame other than this tribulation period is going to last two periods of 1260 days. And uh, we have a few minutes here as we've gone through. I want us to go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And this is Jesus' teaching on the end of the world. Now, we start in Matthew 24, and the disciples, for some strange reason, are showing Jesus the buildings of the temple. 
And, and Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verse 2 of Matthew 24, I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Verse 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when these things shall be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. Now, the disciples made a classic mistake here. When Jesus said there's not going to be one stone left upon another, they said, that's got to be at the end of the world. That's got to be when you said you're coming back. All of these things have to happen at the same time. Is that true? No, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The Romans did raise the temple to its foundation not leaving one stone standing upon another. But look what, how Jesus answers that question. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. How many fake Christ or antichrist? First John tells us that there are many antichrists. How many of them have come along? I mean, just a few of the more notable freaks in history. How about David Koresh, the wacko from Waco? He couldn't figure out whether he was actually Jesus Christ or uh, just uh, one of the great prophets of history. Uh, when Janet Reno was done, he was dead. Uh, there is nothing left of him or his followers. Uh, we've got all kinds of people. I mean, Sung Young Moon came along. He said, Jesus called me three times to fix his failures. After the third time, I could not refuse him. Oh, how could anybody in their right mind follow somebody like that? But they do. And uh, he's still holding on to something, uh, but the IRS got most of it. Uh, how many remember the Beatles? Hare Krishna was their religion. If you heard the crazy commercials, I think it was Dodge came out with the commercials about the anointed one who was your Dodge dealer. Uh, that was blasphemy because that term, the anointed one, is the, is the working definition of the term Christ or Messiah. That's what it means. How many anointed ones have claimed to sit upon the throne in the Indian or the Hindu temples? Buddha claimed to be. His followers, even to this day, I can't remember which one I was being quoted at the time, but they said uh, Jesus was an initiate into the mysteries of the second level. Of course, Buddha was the eighth. All of these things have gone on. Muhammad, the last testament. Jesus was the great prophet. But I'm bringing you a greater message than him. These things are going on and have gone on since the days of Jesus Christ. But what would happen if we had a man come on the scene who was able to bring peace to the Middle East, was to make Jew and Arab sit down together 
and hold hands. Would he not be worshipped as a god? Comes pretty close. I mean, we have some people claiming, remember the last election season here? They were claiming Obama was the Messiah and Phaeton. I mean, if that guy could pass for something like that, I mean, who could, somebody that actually got something done, what would the foolish people of this world do? They would worship him. The white rider. As Jesus was talking about. It says, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet, for nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be, well, nation against nations. Does that sound like a red horse to you? And how about famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places? How about the third rider and the fourth rider? You see, Jesus is describing these things that are going to happen in the book of Revelation in what we call the Olivet Discourse. But he's not using the exact same language here. But we see everything mentioned in the book of Revelation, mentioned here in Matthew 24, as Jesus is describing what's going to happen at the end of the world. And if we go to the book of Zechariah, which we have just a few minutes, I'm going to get all three in here tonight, I think. Let's go to the book of Zechariah, if you would. And I know these, all these references aren't in your outlines. Uh, unfortunately, I don't type as fast as I think, but we'll try to get this thing going here. But Zechariah chapter 1. And once you start reading with me in verse 7, it says, Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sebat, in the second year of Darius, came, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him were there red horses, speckled and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these things be. Now let's skip over to chapter uh, 6, if you would. In verse 1, And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot grizzled and bay horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. And the black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them, and the gristle go forth toward the south country, and the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Get you hence, 
and walked to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. Then cried he upon me and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. And if we come down, let's just touch on verse 12 here. And again, we're just going to give an overview here tonight. And speak unto them, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, it's kind of interesting that as Zechariah is giving this prophecy at the time of the rebuilding of the temple, that he talks about four chariots of horses going in different directions, and the chapter ends with the crowning of the king and the priest that shall build the temple. And people say, well, that's talking about Joshua the high priest and and Zerubbabel who rebuilt the temple. But that wasn't one man sitting upon a throne. And Zerubbabel never sat upon a throne. He may have been a ruler of Jerusalem, but he was not the king in the stead of his fathers as he was. In fact, there has been no Jewish king sat upon the throne of David since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. But there will be again one day. The Bible tells us his name here is the branch. The king of kings and yet the high priest. Now, someone may say, well, why are you going here? I'm going here because the Bible mentions it. And unfortunately, as we look through uh, Zechariah's prophecy, it may actually generate more questions than it does answers. And you know something? That's okay. You don't have to understand everything to understand your Bible. But it is an absolutely interesting parallel that we have these four chariots going out from the mountains of brass. Of course, brass is always a picture of what? Judgment in the Bible. What is happening in the book of Revelation? God's Judgment. The black horse is not named in Zechariah. I mean, well, the black horses go into the north country, I'm sorry. And the white go forth after them, and the gristled go forth into the south country, and then the bay go all over the world. But if you look here, the gristled and the bay are listed as the same one. The red horse is not here in chapter 6, and the black horse is is not in chapter 1. And God sometimes does this just simply so that those who want to be confused and wrestle God's word and say it's just confusion, hey, guess what? They got a platform to argue from now, don't they? Uh, How many of you are willing to let God in his wisdom take care of the missing horses in Zechariah? Uh, I am. And the events that are described here parallel very closely the events that are described in the book of Revelation and as Jesus explains what is happening 
what will happen in what we call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And so as we read these first four seals, the first four seals are four horsemen. The first goes to conquer, conquering and to conquer, using peace. It's interesting that Zechariah says they go toward the north country. What was north from Israel? Well, read in your Bible, Assyria was north. What is Assyria? Well, that's part of modern-day Iraq, and it goes up toward Afghanistan into Persia, Iran. Where's all these battles been being fought? There's an awful lot going on today that's going to be going on when these horsemen ride. Does that mean we're in the tribulation period like Harold Camping said? No. No, we're still waiting for the trigger. Daniel chapter 9. The trigger is the signing of the peace treaty between the man that will become the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. Isn't it interesting how many different people have tried to get a peace treaty in the Middle East? And it just doesn't happen, does it? Because no one has the power to enforce it. But when this guy comes along, he's going to have the power to enforce it. You say, where's that coming from? He says, well, the power is going to be given to him by God. And of course, we read through the rest of the book of Revelation, the beast actually gets his power from the devil, but who allows the devil to have the power that he has? You say, is God responsible for sin? Of course not. But man always chooses to disobey God, does he not? And so, we give our allegiance in, as mankind in rebellion against God. God's judgment is going to begin to be poured out. We see these four riders as they go into different parts of the world. And they are going to bring peace, war, Famine and annihilation. You can get on a plane and in just a matter of hours be all the way across this country. But have you ever thought of what happens in our military? when they send a warning, those airplanes take off from the deck of an aircraft carrier and in minutes, parts of minutes, they're hundreds of miles away doing things that people a hundred years ago couldn't imagine an entire army could accomplish. And we have two or three guys in airplanes doing it all with just the push of a button. It's not too hard to imagine these things 
happening. But does God need all of those things to get it done? Absolutely not. But can he use them? Oh, yes. But the point I am bringing up, it is not unfathomable. It is not unthinkable in the mind of any person who's cognizant of what's going on around them that a quarter of the world's population could be annihilated overnight. Am I right? The numbers that the Bible talks about, unfortunately, are realistic to you and I today. And I want to challenge you that though many have gone before us and said this, this is the time a hundred years ago when you talked about decimating a quarter of the world's population, was that reasonable? Was that something that a person could fathom? No. But today, it's not too hard to imagine now, is it? I want to challenge you. The time is here. And we need to prepare, not as the Seventh-day Adventists are in their planting gardens and, and they're storing up food things. And uh, in fact, they just had a directive uh, few uh, last year or the year before of selling inner city locations and moving out to the countryside where they can raise sustainable gardens and foods, things to keep the people of the church uh, fed during this time. And unfortunately, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your only Savior, you're going to be there during this time. Of course, my first thought is, as they uh, talk about selling their inner city locations, is praying that God will allow us to raise some money to buy a few and start churches there until Jesus comes back. Amen? But he has called us to serve him until we hear the trumpet blow. He has given us this information so that we can know these things will happen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see and understand the things that are painted here through the eyes of John as he has recorded them, that we may see them. Lord, I pray that you would open our vision, that we could see how these words in the book of Revelation actually connect all the way through the Bible to every place that you talk about prophecy of the end times. And Lord, we ask that you would give us a stronger belief in your word and that you would challenge us to be more obedient to it as we see the day approaching. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just keep our heads bowed and our eyes